Yeah, for the next decade, she exploited the U.S. obsession with containing communism, wresting tremendous economic concessions from the American behemoth. In the late 1980s and early 1990s, uh, the Eugenia Charles' reality would set in once more when the threat of communism had been neutralized in the region. Much to her chagrin, Charles would witness the American president, a Democrat William Jefferson Clinton, no less, preside over the evisceration of the island's banana industry as a multinational banana giant Chiquita poured millions of dollars into the Democratic and Republican party coffers. Charles would lament, if we lose the banana industry, we lose the country, quote-unquote. A decade and a half later, as drug-crazed sparrows roamed the island, and speedboats on steroids streaked past the Caribbean spreading the white poison from South America, Dominicans pondered the prophetic nature of her condemnation. What accounts for Charles' leadership? Did she create history, or did historical events account for her rise to prominence? It is an age-old question, as yet unresolved, but one which still preoccupies the attention of scholars. Charles was not to the manner born. She was not a member of a royal or imperial dynasty, or of the Brahim caste whose leadership is taken as if an edict from some deity. Her father, J.B. Charles, antecedents are well known. He possessed a humble farming background. He worked as a mason. However, he possessed a keen business sense which propelled him into business, agriculture, and ultimately into politics. His ambition was fueled by a strict Protestant ethic which dictated that life should be lived frugally and that hard work should inexorably generate profits. Motivated by slides from the Rosso-based colored elite, J.B. quietly amassed his wealth and influence to a point where by the 1930s, he had exceeded in both wealth and influence some of the very merchants who had dismissed him as a poor upstart from Point Michel, the small fishing village where the skians of well-to-do families in Rosso trolled the streets on starlit nights for youthful members of the fairer sex. Point Michel girls, a popular saying goes, are noted for their beauty, not for their brains. And JB mobilized his wealth to give his four children the best education money could buy. The two elder sons were sent to universities, one to the American South, the other to Scotland. Later, they both graduated as medical doctors from the University of Edinburgh. A daughter defied her father's wishes and gravitated towards the nunnery, where she became confined to perdition. The dame attended the convent high school and then learned shorthand at the local magistrate's court. She ultimately gravitated towards law, a rite of passage for the emergent elite, studying first at the University of Toronto and then at the London School of Economics. She returned to Dominica in 1949, where for the next 29 years, she focused on commercial and property law. Charles, however, may have been a politician in waiting. She could divorce herself from neither the political template forged by her father nor the events of the 1960s. J.B. had been elected to the local legislature in 1925, had been involved in the West Indies Conference in Dominica in 1932, when West Indian leaders discussed the possibility of a West Indies Federation, and in the 1950s had become a minister of government. In the 1960s, Charles seemed drawn to the vortex of local politics with the radicalization of Premier Edward Oliver Leblanc primarily by the Black Power Movement and by the political vacuum on the right in the wake of the decimation of the Franklin Barron's Dominica United People's Party in the 1966 general elections. With the, conser with the conservative forces in disarray and only the media posing any serious opposition, the dame gravitated towards the political maelstrom where she remained for the next 30 years. Her ascension to the leadership of the Dominica Freedom Party in 1968 was due both to the forces that had nurtured her and to the political vacuum on the right in the late 1960s. Self-confident, though not to the point of conceit, eloquent, though not a natural orator, forceful without being forbearing, dogmatic without being dictated, Dictatorial, wealthy without being ostentatious, Charles possessed a constellation of attributes that engendered loyalty and a dedicated following in the 1970s. But politics then was very much a man's world, dominated by the strong personalities. In the Caribbean, the leaders seemed larger than life. 
Robert Bradshaw from St. Keats, Forbes Burnham from Guyana, Michael Manley from Jamaica, Errol Barrow from Barbados, and Veerbud Sr. from Antigua. And these leaders had been weaned during an era of trade union militancy and working class populism. This was no place for a woman, let alone one who had not followed the traditional route of womanhood, marriage, children, and homemaking. She was not content to be just a member. She had to be a leader. Charles's tough exterior became as hard as rawhide in the 1970s as she withstood withering personal attacks from political assailants. In the 1980 campaign, she was mocked for wearing 10 cents underwear. In the mid-1970s, she fainted, and a senior minister who chivalrously went to her aid was stopped dead in his tracks by his leader. Charles was criticized for being sterile, ridiculed for having same-sex tendencies, lambasted for representing the rich and privileged. There had been other women involved in Dominican politics, Elma Napier, the Scottish aristocrat became in 1940 the first female in the Caribbean to be elected to the legislature. In 1958, Arthur Felicia Nolfrey was elected to the West Indies Federation Parliament and became a government minister. In the late 1960s, Mabel Moir James had been a member of Edward Leblanc's government. She was married with children. Napier and Alfrey were white and came from privileged families. None of these leaders suffered from the quadruple deviance which haunted Charles. Womanhood, spinsterhood, childlessness, and class prejudice. The dame proved to be no shrinking violet. She dished out as much as she received. She tormented her political opponents and mocked those who loved the trappings of wealth and power just as much as she abhorred them. She ridiculed their love of arthritis, expensive whiskey, and expense accounts that had precious little to do with honest effort. As the tales of profligate and spending and corrupt practices emerged in the late 1970s, the dame would emerge as the most suitable candidate to rescue Dominica from the cesspool of corruption into which it had fallen. There was a Kafkilske quality about the politics within the period. The dame's father had established a penny bank, which was the bank of the working people. In 1976, the so-called Labour government enacted legislation that effectively drove the bank out of business. The very same bank, founded by the man dismissed as a bourgeois and capitalist. In politics, however, perception becomes reality. And by the late 1970s, the reality was that those who spoke on behalf of the working class manifested a greater desire for the trappings of wealth than the notoriously frugal Charles. Leadership is that indefinable quality that enables an individual in the moment of crisis to transcend his or her limitations or shortcomings and boldly chart a course towards national salvation of recovery. It is engendered by nuggets of nurture versus nature or delicate servings of both. Shakespeare's Malvolio in Twelfth Night probably put it best by noting, some men are born great, some acquire greatness, and some have greatness thrust upon them. History abounds with these historic persons. Moses led his people out of the persecution and death trap which was Egypt. Sir Winston Churchill confronted the near annihilation of Britain, rose to become the embodiment of his country's resistance to German fascism. Nelson Mandela summoned Herculean strength to forgive his apophyte tormentors to guarantee a future of racial harmony for his people. Toussaint Louverture came to an accommodation with his white slave owners to halt this country's slide into economic oblivion. The objective conditions in Dominica in 1980 made Charles the leader most likely to lead the new nation. The society was deeply divided along party lines. Hurricane David destroyed 80% of the island's infrastructure. Remnants of the Dominica Defense Force was planning the return of Patrick John to power. Dominica's international image was ravaged to a point where its first prime minister was declared persona non grata by Barbados. In the next five years, Mary Virginia Charles would exemplify moral and political courage to an extent never seen in Dominica. She forged an alliance with the fractious Union, an alliance that ensued industrial peace for much of the 1980s. She manifested another sterling quality, a confidence that enabled her to appoint strong independent persons to her cabinet, such as Franklin Barron, 
Brian Allen, Charles Maynard, and Rupert Surrender. She transcended class by appointing respected persons of modest backgrounds, such as Heskiff Alexander, Maynard Joseph, and Allen Carbon. She would be accused of ruling her cabinet with an iron fist. Yet, every indication is that she tolerated dissent within her cabinet and indeed favored those who disagreed with her policies. Another quality of leadership displayed by Charles is to think outside the so-called ideological box. She adopted some decidedly anti-capitalist or free enterprise policies, such as the organization of the Dominican Export-Import Agency, DEXIA, which subsidized the cost of staples. Her Ministry of Health instituted a policy of primary health care for all. She built feeder roads and electrified many of Dominica's rural communities. Despite her distrust of communism, she gradually came to terms with Castro's Cuba to the point of accepting assistance from that country. He trespasses against his duty who slips upon his watch, as well as he that goes over to the enemy. Here, philosopher Edmund Burke succinctly describes another quality of leadership, an unrelenting work ethic. In this regard, Dame Eugenia Charles had no parallel. Not for her the steady grounds of socializing, or the perpetual trips abroad, or the profile great spending, or the oversized SUVs and other vulgar appeals to vanity. The dame believed that she was in the employ of the Dominican people, and to earn her keep, she had to ensure progress for all people. Within this period, the dame exhibited another quality of leadership, a keen sense of destiny and obliviousness to personal danger. We have seen similar qualities in leaders from Sir Winston Churchill and Mahatma Gandhi to Martin Luther King. We recall the latter famous declaration, I am not afraid of any living man. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the Lord. The dame steered two attempted coups in the face. She was on the list of 100 persons targeted for assassination. Yet, she resolutely refused to surround herself with a massive security detail and ordered her ministers that if she was kidnapped, they should not negotiate for her freedom. The security of the state took precedence over her personal safety. In so doing, she inspired a renewed fervor of patriotism on the island. However, the Grenadian invasion cemented her reputation as a transcendental leader whose relevance reached beyond the closed confines of her island. The invasion exposed another quality of a leadership to be bold and resolute rather than to procrastinate to the point of paralysis. She gave President Reagan the stamp of approval to invade Grenada amidst near universal condemnation. Nevertheless, Charles was resolute. The armchair critics did not live in Grenada. They did not have any family members killed in the massacre that precipitated the United States' actions. Some of the critics lamented that there should have been a Caribbean solution, that the Caribbean island should have organized a peacekeeping force rather than invite the U.S. to enter Grenada. That may suit the patriotic fervor of some, but nothing more. The Caribbean islands lacked the inclination, desire, manpower, or resources to have intervened in any meaningful fashion in Grenada. Nobody understood that better than the Grenadian people did. When the dame addressed White House reporters on October 25, 1983, she outstaged the great communicator for the first and only time in his career. She would later dispense with all diplomatic niceties and say to the American president, you have big balls. Radio that you've started and uh, kudos to you. Well, thank you very much, my brother Gabriel Christian. And um, I just wanted to congratulate you on the work that you continue to do for your country, Dominica, and with your latest book. That is the, the fifth, I think, or, or sixth book that you've written on Dominica, and a very powerful one. I spent uh, some of the afternoon looking, going through it, and it's a really powerful book indeed. And I would like to encourage all of our listeners to, to avail themselves of a, such an important historical part of Dominica. Certainly what um, the dame accomplished is well known throughout the world, and you've done an, a really excellent job of putting together that work. Um, probably you can just tell us, Gabe, what, what was the inspiration for, for writing or for putting together this book? Well, you know, I told someone that perhaps I was the last person who would write a book on Miss Charles. Politically, we were on different sides of the spectrum. But the fact is, in 82, when I came to Washington, uh, uh, the next year was the Green Air Invasion, and I met Miss Charles. 
at that time when she came up to the United States. And over the years, <clears throat> despite the fact that we came from two different polarities, I, get, I got to understand the lady. I got to respect her. I got to be, I got to be friends with her of a kind. Uh, I got to respect her modesty, her sense of integrity, and patriotic commitment. And in 1996, one year after she admitted office, I had the opportunity to interview her for about nine hours. Mind you, I had had notes of different conversations with her over the years. When I'd meet with her at Benjamin's house, or when we had the a meeting at uh, Georgetown with the community and at Naughty Park and different places. But this was a solid nine hours. We were together for a whole day with my family, my little daughter, and our Dominic. And that was tape recorded and videotaped. And that videotape basically Thompson laid silent or in on the archives for about a decade um, because I've been so preoccupied with other things. Finally got it transcribed last summer. Very uh, good. Caribbean Patriot uh, transcribed it, and uh, we uh, actually, you know, interestingly enough, she was uh, she was Guyanese. Oh, she's Guyanese. The lady who did the transcription, that's Marisa uh, Marisa Headley. So the fact of the matter is, once that was done, it was just short step from getting the transcript done to having it um, published, uh, with of course the support of Podcast Press, which is our organization that uh, Judge Irving Andrew and I put together in 1992 promote Dominican and Caribbean history and literature, and the, the, the book came out today and will be on Amazon this weekend, and should hit the bookstores in Dominica within the next couple of weeks. Well, this is excellent, Gabe, and talking about um, Justice Andrew, in fact, I read a little bit of the, of the introduction that he wrote, and in fact, Ms. Charles has been compared to leaders like um, Cleopatra, um, Catherine of Aragon and uh, Queen Elizabeth I and um, you name it, some of the greatest uh, names in history she has been compared with these people. And, and rightly so, rightly so, even where there are those even among us who may deny this reality. The fact is not only was she the first Dominican lawyer, but she was the first political leader and head of state, head of government rather, in modern history. Listen to this now. She was the first African descended female political leader to attain the position of head of government in modern history. So that is a very important um, accomplishment. She was also the first female head of government in her own right in the history of the Americas. Isabel Perón took office in Argentina, but that was through political maneuvering. She didn't run in elections. And that was short-lived. The uh, Argentinian military toppled her a few months or weeks after that. So that doesn't count. So essentially, that, that's what she represented. But more important than just her tenure in office and what she meant to Dominica is what happened in 83. Of course, there are many, like myself, who uh, you know, looked askance at the intervention in 1983 after the massacre at Fort Rupert, which killed Morris Bishop, Eunice and White, and many uh, leading Grenadian citizens. Uh, but uh, her decision to have intervened on reflection and up with the passage of time, it would seem to me, was the best thing that could have been done, considering the fact that other Caribbean islands didn't have the means nor the capacity, philosophically or otherwise, to take action in the way that she wanted action taken. Having done that, of course, she endeared herself to many, she endeared herself to many Grenadian people who still revert her, her river her legacy as, as the person who came to the rest. Gabe, you know, you've spoken to Miss Charles. I mean, she was, she had this kind of iron-fisted um, demeanor and people from the outside looking in thought that she was this very hard, tough, you know, someone referred to as the Iron Lady of the Caribbean along the likes of, of Margaret Thatcher. But you had a chance to sit with her and to talk to her um, in Washington, what was she like? I mean, what what would you like to convey about her that probably was outside of what you know people just looking at her on a political scene would know? Very, very modest lady, very nice, very kind in close quarters, very sharing in close quarters, very simple. She was the she was she was simplicity personified. I mean, Michelle did not stand on ceremony, pomp and circumstance. You know, she made made comment about the bishop coming to meetings with. Five, ten, six bodyguards. Charles never, for instance, had bodyguards. Most of the time that we were with her, she dispensed with Secret Service um, um, protection because she just was a person who didn't care for a lot of pomp and circumstance and ceremony and all that. She was very proper, but she was very, when you got close to her, 
very soft, very uh, soft-spoken. You would get flashes of, 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 that, of that iron lady from time to time. But, you know, she was not haughty. She was not um, uh, a snob. You see, although she was someone who came from wealth, she was not a snob at all. And she did not um, uh, look at you askance because you came from a certain social strata. In fact, we had her at our dinner table, and I had her in different situations where she was very, very simple and didn't ask for much. She didn't ask to go to any malls or fancy restaurants. She didn't, wasn't ostentatious in dress or ostentatious in case. So I say this to say that while the many who would have considered her a conservative autocrat, she really was a down to a person. And that is why I thought the best name we could give the, the book is Mamo, which was the vernacular uh, you know, term of endearment that Dominicans use over her years in office. Yeah, and certainly Mamo. Mamou does convey that attitude of she being been down to. And I said she was extremely wealthy. She was probably by far the most wealthy person in Dominica. Yes, she did not she did not um, show off. And I know that she actually abhorred the, the, the actions of a lot of our current leaders that seem to want to demonstrate their wealth by building huge mansions and driving the SUVs. And she actually spoke very pointedly against that kind of behavior. She spoke about that in the interview. She actually talked about the mansion mentality. Um, you know, the Paris state of mind, so to speak. Uh, certain Caribbean leaders today have been criticized in that fashion. And it's rather regrettable that having had the legacy of people like Leblanc, Louis Douglas, and Mamo, who were very, very simple in their taste and didn't get into any sort of affectation as to wealth, we are going down a road that reminds us of Mobutu and uh, Mugabe and some of the kleptocrats who have uh, uh, solid the, 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 the nation states that they've uh, had the, the, the misfortune to rule. Yeah, and... Who had the misfortune to have them as rulers. Mm-hmm. Yes, and, and Gabe, you know, and she was also very brave, I, I take it. I mean, she, she stared down, uh, you know, she was, she was targeted for assassination in Dominica as a leader, and one of the 100 persons that was on an assassination list. But she was, as you said, she had no, no real uh, belief in, in, in bodyguards, and she was like, whatever will be, will, will, will be. She, she put her life on the line, and she seemed to me as to have been a very brave person. Uh, let me comment on that. Ms. Charles said to me um, that she told the cabinet that if at any time she was kidnapped, don't negotiate for freedom, you know, and do what has to be done and wipe them out. Wow, that's interesting. Because she had the attitude of... If she was mm-hmm. on, do not negotiate for freedom. Come in there and wipe them out. And if that means she has to die, she dies as well. Michelle further told me that on the evening of the coup, she was directing operations from her home. I said, Michelle, do you have any guards? And so she said, I had no guards. I said, weren't you afraid? And she said, no, I wasn't afraid. Whatever would be, would be. They say, Ra, say, Ra. I mean, she had that sort of real um, fortitude. And I'll give you another example. When she got into power and she heard that the defense was preparing weapons, she called in Major Newton. She said, Major Newton, um, I'd like you to come in this afternoon with a list of all the guns and the you know, inventory. So when, he, when she, he came in at 4 o'clock, you know, he had a list of the weapons, and she noticed that certain items were missing uh, serial numbers. So she said, um, well, where are these weapons? The Major said, the commander said he did not know. He said, she said, Major, that's not good enough. You're the commander of the defense. Well, if you do not know your weapons and where they are, then it means you're not safe in your hands. Right there in his presence, she called the chief of police and said, Commissioner Philip, I'm here with the um, commander of the defense force who cannot account for some of his weapons, and I think some of those weapons belong to the police, so why don't you take a truck and come down right now? And in one afternoon, she disarmed the entire defense force. Wow. That was what Wow. No, that's amazing, Gabe. I've never heard of, I never heard the story before, but, but that, that I think exemplifies the kind of person she was. Very decisive. You know, she, she ruled in Dominica at a very difficult time in our politics in Dominica. Of, of course, she faced off two coups. But in the end, I think she, she, ende- she endeared herself to the, to the rank and file in Dominica and to the masses. The Charles left off is highly respected even by her adversaries and former political en- enemies. And uh, Miss Charles was able to stabilize the country. Uh, in that time, we saw an improvement in the standard of education. Our healthcare indices improved. Our international reputation improved enormously. Uh, the country was able to uh, see the pace. There are things that we could have done, but for instance, she nationalized Domlek to her credit, something that we will rule today that that uh, was allowed to revert back to foreign interests. So Ms. Charles comes out looking very good as, and, and comes across as one of the most integrity-driven leaders in post-World War II history. Yeah, but then, but then, you know, what do you make of of her her 
the way she handled the situation towards the end of her leadership. It seems that she's been criticized very severely about the way in which she handled the whole transition, having announced that she was not going to run in the 1995 elections and the way she went about supporting Alan Carbon against the more established persons in the in the party. What do you make of that? And did you get a chance to, to talk to her about that? I talked to her about that. That's in the book that's covered. Uh, one of the points she made is that she wanted to change the image of the Freedom Party as that of a party of the bourgeoisie. And that's why she supported Alan Carbon as opposed to Brian Alley. She felt she had a right to make that decision and that choice. And she was proud of Carbon and the fact he was a worker. He may not have been very educated. There were people that thought that she wanted that to be done simply so she could manipulate him. But I thought she was sincere in wanting to change the image. And she felt that he had more ability to persuade the people in a way that maybe Brian Allen could not. That she felt that he could have rallied people in a way that Brian Allen could not. At the end of the day, of course, Brian Allen lost that election. Interesting. Gabe, let's talk a little bit about her history, okay? Um, coming up, I, I, I know she, she rubbed shoulders with some of the... Of the, of the luminaries in the Caribbean, Michael Manley, Errol Barrow. In fact, they were at school together in Canada. Give us a little sense of her, of her, her upbringing before she entered the world of politics in, in Dominica. Well, the fact of the matter is Eugenia Charles Franklin maybe had one of the most fascinating upbringings of all uh, leaders in the post-colonial or post-war period in the former colon, colonial state. For the simple reason her father was a phenomenal person. In fact, a lot of the books spent uh, focusing on the life of J.B. Charles, who's not had a biography, and I wish we had met him. J.B. Charles was the first black Dominican to own a bank, the Dominican Corporate Bank. He also was the wealthiest black person of his era. He also corresponded with the famed African-American industrialist and philanthropist Booker T. Washington, who built places like Hampton University and Tuskegee University. Um, he corresponded with Dr. George Washington Carver, the famous African-American scientist. What he also did was, when his son was 12, his oldest son, Rennie, he took him by boat to New York and by train to Alabama to place him under the tutelage of the famous African-American scientist at Tuskegee, Dr. George Washington Carver. And every semester, when the semester was over, Remy had to send his books to his father, Dominica, who then read the books and ask all the family members to read the books. That was the kind of father that Eugenia Tata had. He corresponded with Garvey. He brought Garvey to Dominica. His money helped bring Garvey to Dominica. He agitated for self-government and was a member of the legislature from about 1929 or thereabouts and served there for about 26 years. He fought alongside Cecil Royal for the voting rights of Dominicans, which came to fruition in 1951. And he was one of those persons, when Carnival was banned in 1927, when uh, Chief William Lee was attacked, who agitated for the uh, resumption of the Carnival in 19, 1929. So my father was a phenomenal person. He traveled the world, went to revolutionary Russia to try to sell lime oil, to the Russians in the 1920s, right after the revolution in Russia. You know, I mean, he brought Miss Charles to Germany when Hitler was in power. She saw troops marching in Hamburg and, 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 and other places they visited. Um, you know, so she had a very privileged in a way childhood, but her father was a very um, down-to-earth man and also had her put to work, you know, in, on his farm on occasion, although he was preparing all of his children for professions. Benny and Lawrence, the two brothers, became doctors. They went to school at Edinburgh in Scotland. Eugenia became a lawyer. Her only sister, Janice, against her father's wishes, decided to join the nun. They, 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 um, they joined the convent and become a nun and died of pneumonia in England. And then, of course, Charles, during the war, goes to University of Toronto. When passing through the United States, leaves the rebellion on a train when she's denied food to eat because of the color of her skin, rallies African-American soldiers on a train in the United States and takes over the dining car and compels them to feed them at the table of white city now. That's way before the civil rights movement. This is fascinating. Wow. That is that is that is incredible. That's incredible. I mean this is something that I never heard about. I mean so here we were thinking about Eugenia Charles as an autocrat, a conservative, but this woman was very, very radical in that she was able to overcome prejudice and to fight against prejudice in her early life. And when she was in London, she was a member of the West Indian, the famous West Indian student union which had people like uh, Edward Scobie, Michael Manley, Philippe Louis Walde Cross, former RAF officers like Dudley Thompson, both Scobie and Cross were also in the RAF, Errol Barrow, Forbes Burnham, and that student union is seen as one of the most dynamic in the history of London because most of the leaders went back to their countries and became heads of state. Wow, this is fascinating. That's a fascinating touch of history. And and so she comes to Dominica in, in the ni- late 1940s, right? 1949, I believe. She's back in Dominica. Practicing property law and, and basic law. What got her into politics? 
in well, in those early years. My father had been a supporter of the Universal Negro Improvement Association. He'd been a, a founder of the Dominica Self-Representation uh, 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 Society. He'd been a, a legislator. He'd been a banker. He'd been someone who clashed with the administrator because he felt Dominica was not being properly ruled. So she grew up with politics in her veins, and she began, first of all, by writing in the paper articles against the Labour government at the time when she felt they were acting in a way to in, injure democracy. And uh, in 1968, uh, when there was the, the Sedition Act was being passed, which is a short team of bill, she, along with Anthony Agar and Elkin Henry and Scobie and these people, they formed the Dominican Freedom Party, and then the rest is history. She became the leader of that party, and stood for election in 70, lost, 75 won, and from that time always won a seat in Roseau after she initially lost Goodwill. And after the disturbances of 79 and the hurricane of 79 in 1980, she rose to power in a landslide victory after the, the Labour Party had fallen apart because of Matt Patrick John's uh, numerous mistakes. Uh, so she really was well prepared. Um, she was uh, 61 when she came into office, but that did not prevent her from being uh, capable of uh, Herculean efforts uh, that uh, people maybe half her age could not have accomplished. Now she she she, she assumes um, the reins of power in 1980. You said she she won actually when she won in 1975. She won her seat and along with probably one other seat, right? That was Moise, I believe, in in Scotland. So there were there were two freedom parties. So she started in and of course she was swept into power in 19 in 1980 now she came in at, at a critical time because we had just been devastated by by hurricane david in 1979 where some 80 to 90% of the infrastructure in dominica was completely destroyed what did she said about doing almost immediately that that you could consider to be her legacy in dominica well first of all she put in a competent cabinet people who knew uh, how to answer a phone, how to write letters, and how to get things done. And that was very important. The Labour Party had done a great job on the Eoli Blanc, but had in its last years begun to get misdirected, and we know that story, that story is told. And so at the end of the day, you know, they had to reconstruct the island, and to do that they needed foreign assistance, and foreign assistance would only come where the foreign allies felt the government was competent, honest, and could spend the money properly. And that sort of competence she was able to exhibit, and that kind of confidence she was able to instill because people, both in and out of Dominica, saw as an honest person who would not put the money in a pocket. And so there was tremendous assistance from the UK, France, Canada, and the United States that allowed for the rebuilding of roads, the repair of the hospitals and schools, to the point where Dominica came out of that period of rule much longer than it had entered it. And in a way, she. So she, she was able to build up the banner industry, for example, but then in a way she actually saw it because when, when Bill Clinton took over and then he actually acquiesced to the wishes of, of Chiquita and went after the, the banner in industry in the Windward Islands, I think she made a statement to the effect that um, if banners uh, go on, the, the country is finished. And she was, she was right, right? Looking back at that, that's proved to be very prophetic. She was right. But, you know, interestingly enough, she was also a big proponent of diversification. And, of course, there were people in even the current UWP who, like you know, James, very big in the banana industry, who did not necessarily support that. But she was right, that we needed to be able to diversify agricultural production so we would not be totally dependent on bananas and that type of thing. What one thing she did, though, by having a country that produced an enormous amount of educated uh, people and, and students, she may have provided the base for future survival. Because all those persons who were able to get edu a decent education and people who were able to benefit from adult education and skills training really represent as a strategic reserve and a strategic resource that Dominica today can call upon. Because those persons are all over the world earning money and sending those monies home. Now, we're not saying we want to support a mendicant society where people at home just wait for those overseas and money. But in, in time, the, the diaspora movement for development that you and I are involved in, hopefully we can pull it back all together and ensure that the legacy of Libla and Uzi and people like Michelle is respected for that, what they, for that which they did in providing education for the least, the last and the left behind. And Gib, that's a very important point. In fact, I can, I can attest to that because I was one of those who benefited on that. I remember that under her, her leadership, there was a very clear process 
to which you could go and and people who were obviously without the means but who had the abilities were in fact you know given scholarships and so on and and it was very transparent a very transparent system and i was one of those who benefited from that of course we did not have the means my family did not have the means to send me to to college but because of my abilities i was able to get a scholarship through our administration and i believe it was a very open very transparent system and something that I believe that we need to harken back to because we, we had all sorts of difficulties now in terms of the way people are selected and so on. But I believe that she was, in that sense, she gave everybody a, a fear, a fear shake. Well, I mean, that's, that's not quite, you know, that, that's true in one degree, but, uh, you know, people like me, because of political victimization, suffered a lot of scholarship. The Cuban graduates uh, could not get jobs because of the politicization. But I believe towards the end of the term, she mellowed and was able to reconcile herself with the Cuban grads. And certainly, you know, I didn't hold it against her that that scholarship was denied. Uh, I, I felt sometimes, you know, that the gods, you know, are, are working because when one door is closed, another opens. And, um, you know, certainly the antipathy that was, that was there was dissipated sufficient for us to work for Dominica here in Washington as members of the Dominica Association of Washington D.C. to do several projects with the Bill Gates Foundation, with the hospital, the library, you know, uh, participate in the Cherry Blossom Parade on several occasions to promote Dominican tourism. Uh, we were able to uh, look beyond partisanship and to work with Dominica while she was Prime Minister. And she was able to look beyond partisanship and come up here and mingle with us, no matter that or some of us did not support her party or were not members of it. So that was a good thing. And I wish more of our current leaders had that dedication to country beyond party. And that's that's true, Gabe. And I think that is something that that you, you really have put up very nicely in the book. The fact that she was she was willing to to even go back on on what because as you said, she was a, considered to be a fierce um, you know free capitalist and or free thing. And she did not really support the Cuban administration initially. But towards the end of her term, she she mellowed because she realized that several Dominicans were getting educated through that means, and she was able to come around and actually reverse herself on this. And she showed that. And I think that is something that, that she, she must be commended for. And looking back at the life, that is something that actually comes out. The, the ability to, to link or to deal with those who did not support her politically and who, they, who did not see eye to eye with her. And, and I think that is one of, one of the traits that is sadly lacking among our, our current leadership. People get very, you know, very angry with people who don't support them and can talk to them and can deal with them. But I, I thought that the Prime Minister, Charles, exhibited that particular trait, which is so critical to being a, a great leader. Yes, that is, that's correct. Um, you know, you have to be able, in a small country, and even in a big, a big country, and I think President Obama is sure now to reach across the aisle, and to, to not get vexed and not to be you know, ill-tempered and not to see uh, difference of opinion as, as, as um, betrayal or lacking in patriotism. And I think she was able to, to, to do that. And, and because of her ability to reach across the aisle, it's ironic that she came towards the end of her life to an accommodation with the, her former academy, the Dominican Labour Party. And that's what resulted in the big 2000 Rosie Douglas. You, you know, what an amazing scenario. Yeah, that to me is probably the, the most, I mean, ama as you said, amazing and, and most striking thing about it, that she was, in the end, she was able, I mean, she had this constant conflict with, um, with uh, Roosevelt um, uh, Douglas with Rosie Douglas, and yet in the end, she agreed to come together with him to form this, 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 this party, and that made a difference, and that ushered in the, the Labour Party. Uh, quite phenomenal, I, I think. Yes, and you know, our country can only benefit where people can work together. I mean, in other countries around the world, we've seen how fractious um, relations between parties and ethnic groups can lead to genocidal efforts and, 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 and projects. And, and where we can work together and we can see good in each other and we can work for what is in the national interest, we can only prosper. And if there's any legacy in this, it's in that arena, that one must be able to join hands and, and put aside partisanship and uh, differences of color and class and work for the common good. Dominica can only be better for it. We, we, are, we are talking to Gabriel Christian, who is the author of the book called MAMO, um, depicting the life and times of uh, former Prime Minister Mary Eugenia Charles. And um, Gabe is with us. Uh, Gabe, tell me a little bit about the, her title of Dame. Um, how did that come about? Well, Mr. Charles had been a leader uh, in the Commonwealth. In fact, the back of the book is a very nice picture of her with uh, 
three of the two of the other main leaders of our time who were female, Indira Gandhi and Margaret Thatcher, the so-called Iron Lady. And um, she had been an interlocutor on several uh, major um, projects within the Commonwealth and was seen as a leader for gender equality. And as a result of that, she was recommended for the knighthood. Uh, and, of course, you know, uh, for females, you, of course, you don't become a sir, you become a dame. So she became a dame commander of the British Empire, I believe, in 1991. And I was, I was uh, so honored by Queen Elizabeth II. And, um, of course, that's quite a, an honor and reflects the respect uh, in which she was held by uh, leaders on the world stage. But Gabe, you've, you've, you've had a chance to, to, to talk to her, to study her, to look at her life. We've talked about some of her strengths, the ability to reach across the aisle, to, to forget about the opposition and, and, and deal, you know, her ability to reach out to the lowest of the low, even if she was born into means and she was very rich. What would you consider to have been one of her weakest points as a leader? I, I think philosophically sometimes she was a little glib. I think she was philosophically a little... Um, I don't want to use the word shallow, but, you know, uh, Miss Charles was, was like a grocer's daughter. You know, she counted the pennies and the pounds and the shillings and the pence. You know, she made sure the, the store the store was well stocked, but, but she wasn't necessarily looking to build a mall or, or a huge or the Empire State Building. She was just content to make sure the shop was well run. And, and I, I say this not in disdain, but to say that may have been a limitation, that she did not have much time for grand ideas and... Uh, did not maybe set forth a grand vision in the way that someone like a Rosie Douglas or even a Libla might have done. She was uh, she loved her culture. She believed in education. She believed that education, like her father, was the the, the, the southern and, and end of everything. But I felt that she could have been more philosophically driven and could have done much better in working to inspire young people in leadership, in science and technology, and in agriculture. That there could have been a stronger uh, base for small business development that while the middle class grew because of her success in the banana industry not enough trans economic transformation took place to move us along the path of science and technology and building up and strengthening the state college so those are the kind of shortcomings and I believe also that um, uh, the reunion in, in 1988 which is a good idea could have really been the base for the building of the diaspora movement 10 years earlier than we, we, we well almost 20 years earlier than we, we did it in, in, in 2001. Um, so, so those are some missteps that uh, I think hurt her. But on the balance, as I said, you know, the, the, the positives uh, outweigh the negative. Uh, and Gabe, would you consider that, that she was a, a victim of the, of the ideological wars that was fought um, during the, the Cold War? Like, in a sense that she, she kind of suffered towards the end because now the U.S. had kind of moved on and, and, and the, the Caribbean was no longer as important as it was in the 80s. That's right. She could have done a lot more with the non-aligned movement. She could have done a lot more with relations with Cuba. She didn't have to become a supporter of the revolution. She actually went to Cuba after, the, 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 after she left office to find out for herself and actually supported the end of the blockade against Cuba. But if she had, I believe, balanced it more, a little more, been a little more nuanced in the mold of Indira Gandhi. Gandhi. Gandhi, for instance, and India had a very good relationship with the Soviet Union and the Eastern Bloc, but they maintained the good relations with the West and with the United States. Dominica ought to maybe, maybe uh, emulate that a lot more and build stronger relationships with those countries like India, like Indonesia, you know, like Ghana, in a way that might have helped Dominic a little more. And where, where she didn't do that, I think we suffered some. Because when the United States moved on, all the allegiances that she built up over the years were for North. And basically, you know, we were like stranded on the beach. Um, and, 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 and with allies who were not as um, um, helpful to the National Development Project and who were short-sighted in looking only at maybe drug interdiction, drug interdiction and anti-crime as the end all and be all, not understanding that you have to build an economy so your people can have food to eat and jobs to, 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 to uh, support their families so they can stay away from drugs. You know, Gabe, it's kind of interesting because I, I, I was thinking and I'm, I'm trying to think back, you know, during the time all of that was happening in Dominica as we come back to what happened with, with, um, with Newton. And she was heavily criticized for actually allowing his execution to go ahead. Did you get a chance to, to talk to her about that aspect of it? I know that there was a lot of criticism because, uh, you know, for example, she, she, act, she actually allowed or, or pardoned most of the other, of the other leaders um, who were involved in that, in that um, attempted coup. 
yet she persisted with the um, execution of Newton. Um, did you have any chance to, to talk to her and get her sense of a feeling about that particular aspect of her, of her leadership? I did, and, and uh, it's rather sad. I camped with Newton as a cadet. I knew the man. I knew his, his brothers. And uh, it was a sad day when he was killed. I remember it very well. I was in college here in, in Washington. The Labour Party opposed it. Um, but I, I could see her point of view. Um, I, I basically said to her, was the spiritual or the philosophical architect not as culpable? That would have been Patrick John. But her thing was Patrick was in jail and they tried to free him, and that policeman was killed. And 10 others were wounded. And that if she did not make an example of this one person, then, you know, it would maybe become a, 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 repeat, a repetitive thing. And that she wanted to make sure it did not become like some African or Latin American country where people decided, where people decided on a whim to engage in coolitas. By making an example of Newton, it would dissuade others from so doing. So from that perspective, one can understand it, as drastic as it was, policemen did die, they did try to overthrow the government that was legally constituted. And I guess, you know, in a, on, on a balance, if you save one life, if you, if you take one life to save a thousand, then in that, in that sort, of, um, sort of cold uh, calculus, it makes sense. I find that to be to be very fascinating, and that's one of the areas I I, I was kind of in, of interested in. We are talking to Gabriel Christian, who is the author of Mamo, very powerful and provocative um, new book on the life and times of Dame Eugenia Charles. And Gabe, you actually recount a lot of the conversation verbatim from um, Mamo, right, in that book. Well, you know, this is the first book of its kind, Pongkasi Press, where we've used the question and answer mode. I didn't want Urban Andre, Judge Andre, Dr. Andre now, he got his PhD in February. I'd like to have your listening audience now. He's also a judge, did the introduction, and I did bear in witness. Bear in witness because many of the things that uh, affected our politics in the 1970s and 80s, I was at the middle of it, and so I was able to, to see, and of course, I, I worked alongside her from the diaspora perspective when she would come up here. So um, once we got to the interview, I just had it uh, speak for itself because I didn't want to get into editorialization. Let people hear Ms. Charles at her bluntest best in an unvarnished way and rest their own judgment on her own words. So what you, you're correct. It's, 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 it's Ms. Charles speaking verbatim. Wow, and it's very powerful because I was reading some 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 excerpts from excerpts from it, Gabe, and I find it to be to be extremely um, you know revealing and and interesting now is there is there any particular part of this of this that that really stands out in your mind any any of the comments that she made that you would like to kind of point us to well you know the cap so many people in the international world of a career was the invasion of grenada and there are many people on the political left who saw seemed as a puppet of imperialism to have maybe given the card blast ronald reagan to invade grenada uh, when you read what she had to say, you realize that it was not so much the Americans leading, but the following. Ms. Charles and the OECS folks came up with a plan. They strategized, they planned it, and they got the United States to come along because it was also, in their view, in their interest. So, you know, she doesn't come across as a puppet at all, but rather an orchestrator of a plan where the United States was a worthy and willing ally. And it, it really puts a totally different light on the episode involving Ronald Reagan. In fact, she said that it, now that the Americans were not as, as keen initially, but they pushed the point, pushed the point, showed them how it could be done, told them that they didn't have the means. And one month before, one month before, I got a picture of Miss Charles in an aviator's helmet on the deck of USS Independence, an aircraft carrier in war games, one month before the invasion. An amazing photograph. Walking through a row of U.S. sailors who are saluting her. She has a combat helmet on her head. And that is one month before the October 1983 Grenada invasion. I never knew that before before that time. Interesting, interesting. But Gabe, you know, I am, I am, I am really fascinated in a lot of ways by the, you know, by the woman. Eh? And one of the things that you mentioned in your book and, and you, you, one of the questions that you asked and what I did not even know is that she actually worked on the banana fields and she, she was kind of laughing at people who thought she knew nothing about bananas. And I could, I, I could just read a little, a little part of it, if you don't mind, you know, from that for, to kind of give a sense um, to the listener. And the question you posed to her, you said, so apart from going to the plantation to tickle vanilla and maybe help with the land, did you ever work with any store that your father might have had? No, no. And that's her answer. One time he brought land in the center of the island, New Venture up in Bell's area. 
and he planted bananas. It was from forest to bananas, and I spent a lot of time there. He built a house that the grown men lived on the top floor, and we were in the bottom floor of the house. And really, it was most educating to see them with this huge forest planting bananas because they'd plant the bananas first and then cut down the trees. And then you ask another question. He said, and yes, and then they'd cut down the trees. And then the question you asked, which is kind of really interesting, you asked, what kind of role did you have in those days? Did you get in there yourself, if at all necessary? And her answer was, no, I perhaps helped to cook the food for the men and so on. I enjoyed that time too. As a prime minister, they'd say she doesn't know anything about bananas. I'd just laugh because I know that I'd been there before them. Did you know when there's a banana field, it never gets dark? The underneath of the leaf of the banana carries light through the whole night. We'd always look and say, oh, there's moonlight up there. So she had, she had this, uh, this amazing touch. Although, you know, she, she knew about the banana field, she interacted with the men who worked for her father on the plantation. So she had a really keen sense of the actual, you know, art of agriculture. Yes, Miss Charleston grew, grew up in a, fa a family where her father made his money developing estates, planting citrus, exporting limes and lime oil, growing bananas. He was the first secretary of the Domin Dominican Banana Association when he shipped bananas then to, to Canada as opposed to England. And so by the time you and I grew up, we had no recall of that. And because we have poor students of our history, and because we've done a poor job of recording our history, many people didn't know her roots. And that's why it's so important for us to encourage all Dominicans who can write to write. Let us be seen as a learned and competent people because all ethnic groups that know the history and have a mastery over their heritage are, are, are successful. The Jews, the Chinese, the Indians, they have an absolute sense of their heritage. They know about their heritage. Their history is written. And by that virtue, they rise. So too, we can rise. We make sure we know the history of our leaders, the history of our society, because you cannot build on something where there's no foundation. Absolutely. And Gabe, you, you, you mentioned, in fact, talking about roots, um, her grandfather was, in fact, a, a Frenchman, right? Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. They had roots in, in, in the French islands of Guadalupe Martin. Oh, wow. Yeah, very, very fascinating stuff, Gabe, about Dame Eugenia Chan. I would like to encourage, and you said this book is already available. Mm -hmm. Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. The book also, as you may have noticed, has a, 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 a cache of very rare photographs. You know, Dominique in the 1930s, the Cathedral, Rose Bayfront, um, the um, uh, the Paz Hotel, which is, you know, now gone, uh, so that people can have a sense of what Dominica looked like in the 1920s and 30s when Miss Charles was growing up. The Botanic Gardens, we've gotten some very good pictures from the Dominica Academy of Arts and Sciences, which we are part, which has done a fascinating website on the Botanic Gardens. We now have pictures going back 100 years old at the Botanic Gardens that people can see online. So some of those pictures were used as well. And so the book is not only a history of Miss Charles, it also gives you a sense of Dominica in the old days, in the middle part of the last century and early. And Gabe, I found that to be very, very fascinating. And one of the, of the things that really endeared me to this book, as I saw it, um, all of those rare photographs, you know, one of them, of the photographs, as you mentioned, showing the boats that would come across from, from the southeast part of Dominica, and they would round this very, you know, land, and they would be have, they would have children, all that, and they would come right there in front of the of the old jetty in Roseau, right where the post office is. Very fascinating pictures of Roseau in the early 1900s. And Dominica was very, very well studied there by by the United States and and the National Geographic Society. So the National Geographic Society has some very prized old pictures of Dominica that Dominicans need to be aware of. And those who are in the Washington D.C. area should visit the National Geographic Society, which is covered Dominica. In fact, they covered Miss in 1992, but they've covered Dominica for about 100 years. Yeah, and so you've been able to draw on that, on that really rich um, history to bring into this book. So, so it really comes, so it's something I, I believe, that's the kind of book that I believe every Dominican should, should get a hold of, because it, it, it's a good chronicling of the, the history of Dominica, one of the most fascinating leaders to, uh, to have a grace the world stage, because Miss Charles, I believe, transcended just Dominique, you know, Dominica. She was actually a, a leader of, 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 you know, worth in the world. She was recognized worldwide. And even today, everywhere I go, people ask me about Miss Charles. People ask me if she's still the leader even, you know. Um, so she was well known throughout the world. She was a, quite a great leader. And, and the fact that you've been able to bring that together in the book, along with Dominica's history, I think is, is really a fascinating piece of work. And, uh, and I, I really must congratulate you for, for doing this for country. I, I, I thank, I thank first of all the good Lord and my parents and, and, uh, my teachers at the grammar school and the mixed school and the schools in between 
and certainly my partner Irvin Andre, and certainly I, I don't want to leave you out, Thompson, because you, in your own way, through the Dominican.net and now the Dominican.net radio station, has been a, a seminal leader in, in in recording Dominica's history, spreading the good word about Dominica, and encouraging Dominica to be to be patriotic and inspiring us to 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 more public interest commitment. So you know, this is just part of a of a of a, of a common struggle. Uh, we know that uh, to be productive, we have to produce. And uh, if we say we have scientific backgrounds, we need to write papers on science. If we say we have backgrounds in art or history, we need to go ahead and, and, and likewise produce so that the world will recognize, small though we are, we are competent people grounded in excellence. And that was what Mr. Darth lived. Yeah, and that is something I think that we should all be all be proud of. And, and certainly the fact that you've actually put that in, you know, in writing, it's now available. And the book's available already at Amazon, is it? Uh, the, uh, the books will be on Amazon by the end of this weekend, yeah. Okay, excellent, excellent. So that's something that I would like to encourage everybody to, to do. You, you can do a search on the Gabriel Christian or just Mamu, and I'm sure it will it will show up. And you can get a copy through Amazon, and it will be available locally in Dominica as well. That's right. Ms. Michelle's birthday was May 15th. She was born on May 15th, 1919, and uh, we will see whether we can get something done in Dominica at around that date. We also want to congratulate the Dominican leaders, uh, Hubert Charles, and certainly Mr. Owen Bully for the Dominican Book Festival, which takes place every year in early August. Uh, maybe we will also be do some fora on that um, book as well. But certainly, um, I tell you, you made the very good point there, Thompson, when you noticed that uh, you noted that Ms. Charles is the most respect, well-known and respected Dominican leader in history. People meet me all the time. Uh, from other Caribbean islands. And just, in fact, I, I just left the function, um, a Trinidadian function, and of course, you know, the name on, on, on people's lips when you speak about Eugenia's house is, is, is quite reverential. People, even if they didn't agree with her, they really respected her uh, as a person who uh, brought respect to uh, Caribbean womanhood and brought respect to the Caribbean. Okay, Gabe, yes, I, I wanted to go back to a little bit of of history before we end, um, and that, that was the way that Miss Child dealt with Lennox Hornichurch, um, the father of Lennox Hornichurch, when he was kidnapped. And did you get a chance to talk to her about that particular incident? It, it had to do with the, the whole, at the time, the dread movement and, and the different force and so on. But there was a lot of criticism because of a stance of not negotiating or, or from the very outset, saying that she would not negotiate uh, um, with the, the Rastas who, who were holding him. Uh, did you get a chance to talk about that? We, we talked about it over time. I don't think it came up as a specific chapter in the book, but I'll tell you her position. Her position was at all times to not give in to any act of terror. So her position was she started with herself, and she said that if she was kidnapped, do not negotiate. So, you know, it was not that she was trying to just set one standard for somebody else and another standard for herself. She felt that if one were to negotiate with terror, then it would, in fact, encourage terror. And in, ironically, in the case of Mr. Ted Honichurch, we now know that he died shortly after he was kidnapped, that he did try to escape the night of or the next night after he was kidnapped, and he was, in fact, killed in the process. So all the, all the while, where people were talking about bringing Mr. Honichurch home, Mr. Honichurch actually was dead and moldering, moldering in the grave. Okay. Wow. Well, Gabe, this is fascinating stuff, as I said, and, and uh, the book is called Mamo. It it's, will be available um, via Amazon.com by the end of this week, available in stores in Dominica very shortly. And uh, let me thank you. Any, any, any final words? Well, I just want to encourage all Dominicans to reflect on the fact that we produce great within our ranks. Our people are intelligent and virile people, and we must never lower our standards because of party affiliation or because of personal preference or friendship. We must put those things second, third, and last when it comes to Dominica. Dominica, we must always put first. In the way we rule ourselves, it must be based on rule of law. It must be based on integrity. It must be based on, 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 on good governance, transparency, and accountability. Those are the principles that Eugenia Charles stood for. Those are the principles that have made for advanced countries to be advanced where people trust each other and trust the government to do the right thing and trust their leaders will use the treasury and public funds properly and not turn it to their own narrow, selfish interests or put it in the garbage bin. Actually, the matter is, Eugenia Charles comes across on reflection as a leader for the ages because she did the best she could for our island, left it a better place, never took away 
rule of law as the principle, despite her toughness, democracy thrived. At the end of the day, her party was removed in a free and fair election. And let it always be that way, that we have a democracy. Our leaders can be respected, not because of what they can give to us, but what they can inspire us to do. As Kennedy said, ask not what your country can do for you, but instead ask not what you can, that which you can do for your country. Michelle did the best for our country when she was pretty much, uh, you know, coming on to being a senior citizen. She gave the last uh, very uh, dregs of her life and, and, and her energy for Dominica, and we must be proud of her. Yes, and certainly, Gabe, we are proud of you for writing this book, Mamo. It's, as I said, Mamo, Gabriel Christian, the author. This book is will soon be available in stores, and we want to thank you, Gabe, for telling us all about it and for reminding us of the leader that Miss Charles was and certainly thank you a lot for continuing to chronicle Dominica's history. Thank you Thompson for being an inspiration to all of us. Okay, thanks. Bye-bye.